And especially when I was first being diagnosed and they would tell me that in the hospital. Okay, yeah, you're type one, you're gonna live with this for the rest of your life, but it's not gonna change anything. I would get so mad because they had no idea how much it literally changed my whole career outlook and everything that I thought was going on with my life. And I actually was interested in flying for the military. So I kind of had that double hitter there. Oh, hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Walt Trennan, and you're listening to Ask Me About My Type 1, the Q&A show all about type 1 diabetes. So this week is all about a phrase that we hear a lot in the type 1 community. Type 1 diabetics can do anything. We hear it a lot at diagnosis from our medical team. It's plastered all over type 1 social media. It's even the subject of panel discussions at type 1 conferences. And while it's a great message to send out to our community and even here sometimes, I think we all know the deeper truth. For one, as type 1s, we are literally defined by our inability to make insulin. So that's one thing that we definitely can't do. But even the phrase itself comes with its own warning. It's always followed by, except, military service and flying planes. Now most people are okay with this. Not everybody wants to join the military, and being a professional pilot isn't exactly the first on everybody's list of dream careers. But, like in the case of this week's Type 1 guest, Danielle, she actually dreamed of doing both. And as you'll hear in the episode, Danielle actually isn't the only person out there who had dreams that were literally stopped by Type 1 diabetes. On this episode, Danielle tells us what it was like learning that her career dreams were basically over after her Type 1 diagnosis, and her initial frustration with that phrase, Type 1 diabetics can do anything. As always, Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to this podcast. You can also leave comments on the show's Instagram handle at AskMeAboutMyType1. Or if you want to be part of the conversation, you can leave me a voicemail through the link at the end of the show notes. Once again, thank you for tuning in, and here's the episode. So hi guys. Hi Danielle. Hi Regine. Thank you so much for coming on. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. All right, Danielle. Why don't you introduce yourself? I'm Danielle Dobchek. I'm currently 24. I'm from a small town about an hour south of Chicago. I met Walt at a slipstream summer camp last year. And I work uh, at an airport uh, coordinating private flights. And when were you diagnosed? I was 21. It was 10 days before my 22nd birthday. I remember last year when you went, so we went to the main slipstream and you kind of, it was kind of like a, a whim thing for you you kind of just showed up with not a whole lot of luggage from what i remember kind of just the shirt on your back kind of thing that's shocking pretty much well because i was like standby yeah i was like washing my clothes in the shower and i was like i don't care what i have to do to go to this thing you know i'm going and yeah i had like a little backpack in my blanket and that was about it did you just find out about it and like sign up for it right there or did you, were you planning on this? So I was, well, I think I was one of the furthest people away that came. Like a lot of people were from the Northeast and like drove and I just kind of heard about it and saw the main one. There wasn't, I'm from the Midwest and there wasn't any in that area. So I really wanted to go, but I knew the flights were going to be really expensive. And actually Regine put me on her flight benefits to fly standby. And so I was watching it for the longest time and I kind of reached out to them and I was like, hey, I'm going to fly standby. So it's not like confirmed that I can make it. When is the latest I can stand I can sign up? And they're like, well, I guess we can make an exception like the day before kind of thing. <laughs> so I basically just had to make sure that I was going to get on the flight. And I told them, I'm like, all right, I'm coming. So they <laughs> like had to add me to all the lists like last minute and stuff. But I'm really glad I got to go. We spent a lot of time in the canoe, I remember, on the lake. Yeah, we did. It was kind of our, you know, once we had that first time of canoeing, then we had free time. We're like, it was kind of our thing. Like, yeah, let's just go canoe and listen to Pocahontas on the lake. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. (laughs) All right, Regine, introduce yourself. What's your story? 
My name is Rogine Heimstreet, and I'm from Houston. I'm also 24 years old. Danielle and I met at in college our first year there at Southern Illinois University. We were both in the same program in the flight training and aviation degree program, and we were one of uh, we were both the minority in our career and like in our college classes. So we we bonded pretty quickly on being one of the only girls to be there. And we've been inseparable pretty much since then. Okay, so you're a pilot. I am. I'm an airline pilot out of Chicago here. And then, yeah, so Danielle, that's actually part of why I wanted to get you on. Because your particular story kind of comes up every now and again. When type 1s talk about, oh, we can do anything. Except, and there's always those two things that we can't do. uh, Join the Army and then fly commercially or fly planes. That's what people say. They I don't think they actually know what that means is like they can't fly planes, but it's something that comes up a lot. And I really wanted to get your kind of take on it because that's literally you're the one person I know that actually that affected profoundly. So talk to me about when you were diagnosed and like what phase you were in your life and then how that transpired. Yeah. So I always go back and forth saying that I can't decide if it was like the worst timing ever or the best timing ever because I was a senior in college and you know, all three and a half years I've done all my pilot training and it's really tough and it's a lot of work and a lot of money, not to mention. And I was right in the middle of commercial training. So after you get your commercial, you can be paid to fly. You can get a job. You continue if you want with your multi-engine and uh, certified flight instructor, but basically commercial is, you know, you can get a job. So I was right in the middle of that. And I think it was like the middle of first semester. And then I just noticed I was getting really sick. And basically when I found out, I didn't really know the rules, but I kind of figured it would affect my flying since you have to hold certain medical standards. And so, yeah, when I found out, I was just kind of doing a lot of research about how it would affect my flying until I found out that basically it would ground me. So, Okay. And Regine, since you two were so close, where were you when all of this was happening? Well, I remember being at Danielle's apartment one day just talking about like flying lessons and she said she may have to hold off on them for a little bit because she's been feeling sick and she'd been testing her blood sugar with her dad's tester and I didn't really know like what that meant. She wasn't sure either at the time. It was just like kind of a suspicion Um, and then I remember she had some pain going on and then I got a text one day in the middle of, I was at work, that she was going to be, she's going to the ER, and if I could come as quickly as I could. So, I mean, I, I went to the ER, and she was laying in the bed, and it was one of the worst days ever. That's where she was diagnosed, and this is really hard. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) One sec. That's all right. Um, so that's where she was diagnosed, and I can't. Yeah, it's okay. It, it's kind of weird, I think, like, because a lot of people were diagnosed when they were kids. Maybe they're not still emotional about it, but it is pretty recent for me, so. And there were a slew of other issues, like she had kidney stones and a kidney infection, and she was just in so much pain, and her family was hours out of a drive away, so really her and our other friend were the only people that could be there for her. And it just sucked seeing her in so much pain and kind of getting the diagnosis that she had been suspecting for a few days or weeks at that point, because I kind of knew what that meant at the time. I don't know if you did, like as far as your career went. Yeah, I kind of, at first I thought, so there's three classes of medicals. And the third class, I can still get. It's just recreational flying. Um, Basically, anyone with a driver's license can get it. So I knew that was going to be fine, but you can't obviously get a job or anything. And at the time, I thought that I could still get a second class medical, which you could fly, you know, what's an example of that? Like, Like really tiny planes, like sightseeing stuff, but not like jets I mean I guess you could right yeah it just wouldn't be like an airline type of job that I was picturing but I still thought okay I can still fly it just may not be what my friends are doing so that's what I thought and then it took me a couple days to 
figure out that no, I it meant it would drop everything. Yeah, she was in the hospital for a few days, which was very painful to see. I mean, her family got there what like the second day. Yeah, so we were yeah we went to college like five hours from my house, so they they drove down as soon as they could, but that was kind of hard not having my family there, but I had my friends, so yeah. And then when did it really kind of set in that you were not only type one, but like your career plans were changed so drastically? Yeah, I think it was all kind of like a haze for a while. And I I tell people like mostly it was the shock factor of losing the career, like my new diagnosis, my new life of, you know, this type one whole new world didn't really like bother me or like, I didn't think about it that much. It was more of the flying. And I think like after those first few days when I just kept doing research of what this meant. And then I sat down with like some professors at school and some people in charge of the flight program and kind of like talked to them about it. And um, they kind of understood the reality of it. Um, So yeah, it took maybe about a week to really realize what it meant for the rest of my life. And what did you know about type one or diabetes in general at that point? Yeah. So it's kind of interesting because my dad is a type two, but he is insulin dependent. So we are kind of really similar. I know that we don't like comparing to type twos or whatever, but he uses the same insulin as me. Like we sometimes will, like if I run out of my Lantus, I'm like, oh dad, I'm going to grab one of yours. I knew a lot about type two because of him. My grandpa also has type two and he's insulin dependent. But I didn't really pay too much attention to it growing up. Um, I saw him test his blood sugar. And I know like whenever me and my sister would like fall when we were little and we'd like start bleeding, they're like, oh, pull out the tester, you know, just to check them. Like, so we don't have to prick their finger or whatever. So I knew about that. And that's why I just had my dad's extra one laying around when like when I knew I was getting sick. And my mom was just kind of like, maybe you should test because... This is kind of looking, my dad lost a lot of weight before he was diagnosed and I was starting to lose a lot of weight. So we kind of had that knowledge of it. And what about you, Regine? Did you know anything about type one or diabetes before Danielle was diagnosed? A very slight amount. My cousin is type one diabetic and I grew up around him. So I, I didn't know like the medical reasons for it or anything, but I did see him testing his blood sugar and using insulin and saw what it was like when he got low and things like that. So I have minimal knowledge on, on that. Okay. You're not the only one. You're not the only person <laughs> that doesn't know why we get it. It's, it's still baffling scientists today. So, uh, right. but yeah, but in general, yeah, most people don't know about it because they really don't have to. There's no, uh, until obviously they get that diagnosis. So you're not alone in that. So, Let's get to your question. So, Regine, what is something that you have been wanting to ask either Danielle or just kind of want to know about type 1 in general? Um, let's see. So, I've I've been wondering is your diabetes something that you want us to communicate more about? I felt it's a touchy subject and I don't know how often I should ask about it or bring it up or check in with you just cuz I don't want to, you know. Yeah, and I think it's like different with all my friends and family like they all approach it differently which is fine and I get like I think if I was approaching someone who had something like this I would be very like reserved about it and I wouldn't want to bring it up either but I think like at first when I was diagnosed I really don't want to talk about it and I, I know Walt you can relate to that and I, I really just didn't want anyone to know and just you know let's just move on but um now I think you know, as one of my friends are like asking questions and like wanting to learn more, like I definitely, I think that helps. And especially like if they know more about your lows and your highs and what that means, just like wanting to know that knowledge, you know, it's only going to help things. Especially in those, those emergency sessions. But hearing you talk about it reminded me of back when I was first diagnosed, I was 12. So 
very young, kind of like the typical age range where people get diagnosed. But I was very much in the same boat where I did not like talking about it. I didn't like hearing the word diabetes. That was just like a huge trigger for me. I remember I did everything I needed to do because my parents told me to do it. Like it wasn't something I really had to take too much care of. But I do remember one time when my brother, my younger brother, he was trying to point something out to me and it happened to be underneath my type one pouch, the pouch that I had at the time. We all have, you know, our type one pouches. And he said uh, very specifically, oh, it's under your diabetes stuff. And I, I, I screamed at him. I was like, shut up. Just because he brought up the word. And it was kind of like shocking even to me, like how angry I was that he brought it up. And it's just something I was not into. So I think like Danielle's saying, it's definitely different uh, depending on who you're talking to. Obviously, I was not the best person to bring it up to. But again, it's kind of the, getting those questions in and letting them know why you're asking them, I think, is probably helpful too. Right. It's not because you want to be like nosy or you want to tell them how the how to live their life. It's more so like I want to be able to take care of you when I need to. And this is how I need to do that or this is how I can better do that. So that's, I don't know, my suggestion. I don't know yeah, that I, makes sense. I don't know if I would have listened to that back then, but... Now I'm all for it. So here we are. <laughs> How are, have you noticed that, Danielle? How, has it gotten easier to talk about or did camp help at all? Was that the first time you were like really surrounded by type one? Yeah, camp definitely helped. I know a couple people like in my town who have it and but I never really got a chance to like really sit down and talk to someone and then being surrounded immediately by I think we had like 50 type ones was just like yeah, it did make it a lot easier. And I think over time, I've just, yeah, I've wanted my friends to like, want to learn about it. And like, I'm definitely more open. I I will pitch camp to anyone. I actually, I met someone through racing, um, who has type one, and I'm bringing her to California this year. So that's cool. So Danielle, have you gotten any questions in the last uh, three years? Has it been now? Yeah, almost three. Almost three. So have you gotten any questions that have really stuck out to you or ones that have kind of stumped you? Like, I remember back in the day, uh, another big reason why I didn't want to talk about it is because I didn't really know a whole lot about type one. I didn't, it took me it's probably like maybe 10 years in that I learned that it was an autoimmune disorder and not something that like I did by happenstance or just got like out of the blue. Yeah. So I was like really resistant to learn anything new about it. I, I knew what I had to do or like knew about lows and highs and stuff like that, but it was very minimal. And I had been living with it for over a decade at that point. So have you run into any questions that have like really stumped you or anything like that come up in the last three years? Well, and I, I really like agree with what you're saying. Like at first I didn't really get it either. So I just avoided it. Um, but the more I learned, you know, this wasn't my fault and this happens, um, the more I wanted to educate others on that too. And I mean, just the classic question, I guess that probably everyone gets is like, when you tell them you're diabetic, which I agree, I, the, there's so much negative connotation with that word. I just don't like using it. But as soon as you say it, you know, people will say, oh, so you just watch your diet, right? And that's the most common. And it's also probably one of the most frustrating. But, you know, you try to educate. But I, I struggle to find like a condensed version of like how to explain it to people without like the losing their concentration you know yeah yeah there's a very middle ground kind of approach to it some people kind of go into like the huge history of type one and how it's been around since the ancient egyptian times and how it's an autoimmune disease and stuff like that they give a ted talk basically and it's not necessary people don't need a certificate in type 1 diabetes after one conversation with you so it's definitely learning your elevator speech because every time you meet someone, you have to kind of explain it to them. It's or at least the people that you feel like you want to tell. So that can get really daunting and really exhausting, too, because uh, some people don't get it. Some people don't want to get it. Some people don't really care. It's very hit, hit or miss and case by case. Yeah, exactly. And I think probably one of the more frustrating things with that question is then they let me explain it to them. And it's it really just with a couple of people I've noticed, it really seems like they're interested and they get it. And they're like, Oh, that makes sense. Like you, I say, you know, I can eat what I want, but I just have to count for it and, you know, make the corrections, whatever. And they, they say, Oh, I understand. And then like a week later, they'll see me like eating a piece of cake and they're like, oh, what are you doing? And I'm like, did you not just listen to anything? You know, it's, it's, I think it's just so ingrained into people with like, just the way society is with diabetes that even if you explain it, like people are just so set on what they think they know. 
fighting an uphill battle, basically. There's a lot fewer of us than there are of people that don't have it and don't know what they're talking about. So they're probably going to get hurt a lot more than we are. Another thing you mentioned, like, I, I don't like the word diabetes either. I feel like it's it's a really, I don't know, back, obviously back when I was younger, I hated hearing it. But now it's still a very kind of a negatively, it has a lot of negative connotations. That's why I like to say type 1. Like, I have type 1 or I live with type 1. Um, yeah, me too. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if it's a good or a bad thing, but I, you're the first person to actually like say that because everybody else seems to be okay with calling themselves a diabetic or oh, I have diabetes. But it's like I feel like that's not the whole story. Like diabetes is a, is an umbrella term. Like there's two different types, and like I have type one or I have diabetes, but I have type one. Right. So yeah, I don't know. You're the first person to agree with me on that. So thank you. Yeah. <laughs> you're officially best guest so far. Awesome. Awesome. <laughs> All right, Regine, do you have any, uh, do you have another question? I do. So type one and type two, I know the differences as far as like how it's different being diagnosed with it, but how internally is it different with um, like the production of scientifically? Like scientifically what's different on the inside? Yeah, that's a good question. Danielle, what's your understanding of it? You do such a good explanation of this, but I, I will try. <laughs> I don't think I've ever really spoken to someone with type 2 about their type 2. Yeah, and it's harder for me because both of my dad and my grandpa are insulin dependent. So it's kind of like there isn't really much difference at that point. But I guess to start for your insulin dependent, the way I understand it is that your pancreas can't produce enough insulin or doesn't use it the correct way when you have type 2. And it's either like genetic reasons or, you know, like your diet and health, whereas type one is autoimmune. So it's just something that your body set off a trigger. And so your immune system attacked the cells that produce insulin. Is that correct? Okay. So how would you be non-insulin dependent as it, how, how is that possible? I think most type twos aren't insulin dependent and that's why they say if you control your diet and exercise like it'll help oh, I you see. Okay. like regulate it better right yeah okay because i i felt a little more educated on type one just because i'd go with danielle to her like the first five doctor's appointments she ever went to after being diagnosed like i was there with her and i would call her mom and explain what the doctor said so I feel pretty educated on like type one, but I don't know anything about type two as far as like biologically speaking. So yeah. that's interesting. I didn't know that. Kind of the way I explain it to myself is that they still make insulin. It's just that their body doesn't really know what to do with it. Okay. Either they make way too much and their body's just built up a tolerance to it. That's why they still get high blood sugars and it typically, and it tends to happen in people that are older. Because, right. you know, when, you're, when your pancreas has been running for, you know, 50, 60, 70 years, like sometimes it'll give out uh, or it just stops producing as well, insulin as well. Their, medic- their big medication is called metformin. And basically it, it makes it easier for the body to absorb the insulin that you make or that, okay. they, that they make. But like Daniel said, a lot of it, it can, a lot of the, the negative symptoms can be uh, helped by diet and exercise. There's actually a lot of debate on how many types of diabetes there are. Some people think that there's like five or six and we're just, we just know about the the two types that we, you know, hear about commonly, but you know, they might even have like a completely different kind. And it's just, I like the idea of diabetes being a spectral disorder. So like, you know, depending on where you fall on it, that's the kind you have Okay. instead of just like, you know, one or the other, because you know, some some people fall in the middle kind of like the way. Danielle's grandparent, uh, grandpa and dad sounds like they do at least. And then there's other people with, you know, people diagnosed in their thirties with type one, but it's, you know, it takes a while to get to that diagnosis because they're so out of the typical type one story. Like, you know, like for me, I was in the preteen kind of phase where a lot of type ones are diagnosed, but not everybody, at least, and especially today, not everybody is diagnosed at, you know, 10, 11, 12. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Danielle, did you meet any other people at camp that were diagnosed later in life? I did. Yeah, it was actually interesting because I was expecting to be like kind of one of the only ones. And it was definitely like not as common to be older. But I was surprised at how many people I met who actually were in like their lower 20s also, like pretty close to the same age as me. So 
that surprised me a little bit. I was actually wondering, does, in your opinion, Danella, did that make it more challenging getting it at a later age rather than at a younger age? That's a really good question. And I think about this all the time. And it's like, and at camp we talked about it a lot too, because some people I was in the cabin with, I mean, they were diagnosed when they were like six or eight or whatever. And when they looked at me and they found out I was diagnosed in 21, they're like, wow, I think that'd be so much harder. And I looked at them and I said, I don't know. I think as a kid, I thought that would be so much harder. So I don't know. I can see where they, they said, you know, you had, you lived your whole life one way. And then all of a sudden it came at this roadblock and you had to change everything. But for me, I look at it as like when you're a kid, you know, nothing makes sense to you. You know, you're so innocent and little. To me, that seems difficult, but I, I go back and forth with it. I think also being older, you know, you're able to just take things on quicker and just, you know, you get handed the situation and you just, you do what you have to do with it and, you know, you live with it. Yeah. So. People can get used to surprising things or they underestimate themselves, I think, a lot. And yeah, it's, it's a common debate. I, I ask people that are diagnosed later in life and they say like, yeah, I'm kind of okay with being diagnosed at this point just because I could figure it out better than maybe or the way they, they think that their you know, 12 or 10 year old self could have. It's a weird dynamic. And it's something that's really hard to say because I, I don't know what I would have done had I been diagnosed at 20 as opposed to 12 because I had had it up until I was 20. Right. Yeah. And some of the people at camp were kind of saying like, well, I think it was easier that I was a kid because I that's I just grew up. That's all I knew. And I'm just so used to it. And you had to change everything, you know. But I think a lot about, like, my diagnosis with flying. And maybe it would have been better if I were a kid because then I wouldn't have even developed this idea of I'm going to be a pilot because I would have just grown up knowing that, you know, that was a restriction. So when did you decide that you wanted to be a pilot? I always, like, grew up, like, fascinated by it. And then... I didn't really know what I want to do. Um, I think in high school is when I kind of like decided on it. How is that? How are you even exposed to that? Like in high school as a career option? Um, well, my mom is a travel agent. So just traveling with her and I live kind of close to a college that has a lot of flight classes and stuff. So being around that, actually, my grandpa who was tattooed used to work there and he would take me there to see all the planes and stuff. So that's how I got interested. Yes. The big question is, why aren't type ones allowed to be professional pilots? Like, what's what's the reasoning behind that? So basically, it's any insulin dependent diabetic. So it could also mean like my dad, because they're afraid of the side effects of insulin, more so the lows and especially severe lows. They when they were there was different laws before about type threes where they just or not type threes, um, <laughs> class three medical where they used to have rules where you like had to check your blood sugar like 30 minutes before the flight, an hour into the flight, 30 minutes before you land. And like, if it was under, I think under like 90, they were like not okay with it. Or if it was above like 200 or something, they changed it now, but they're just more nervous about the sudden lows. And like, if you lose consciousness or even just like your ability to focus and think clearly. Knowing what you know about flying and how, pilots fly because like you know how type ones have an, a better a, a, not maybe maybe not better but like a very different understanding of type one as opposed to like a, a medical professional who doesn't have it but has to like you know educate people on it and diagnose people on it so what is your sense of those rules should they be there can type ones manage this because from my very limited understanding of aviation you always have to have a co-pilot like there's always people in the cockpit at all times to me, as like, you know, not knowing anything of flying, it seems like as long as you have one non-type pilot, you're fine in terms of being able to fly. Yeah. And I bring up that argument a lot. And my, my dad says that all the time too. You know, there's someone always there. And who's to say, you know, we hear about all the time where you're one of the pilots like has a sudden heart attack. And so, you know, you can never predict that. Who's to say that can happen? And, you know, with us, you either can feel a low coming on or you can wear a medical device that will warn you a heart attack is just going to like happen. So I do agree with that where, you know, you're always there are some single pilot operations, but I would say for the most part, you're going to be at least one other pilot. So, you know, I, I do agree that there's going to be some kind of 
Yeah, uh, I wouldn't have thought of it if this hadn't happened to her. But after seeing her and the way she manages diabetes, I mean, she manages it very well. So if that's how it is for most type ones, then I don't see why they shouldn't be allowed to fly an airplane at all. I think actually in Canada, they reverse the law. So I feel like it should happen soon here, but the FAA moves so slowly and the U.S. government's really slow with that stuff. But I do, and we're both, I think, very hopeful for the reversal of that law just because they are learning more because of people like Danielle who have like written articles and things on the subject. They're becoming more aware of that type ones are perfectly capable of safely flying an aircraft. So I don't know. I'm very hopeful for her that they do change this law. Well, I remember sending Danielle the article about the Canadian, like the first Canadian type one pilot after they changed their regulations. And then looking at the American side of it, the medical standards are not outdated, but they're pretty old. They're based on, I think they were like developed in the 60s or something like that. And type one back then was a lot harder to manage because it was a lot more unpredictable. I was really excited to see that Canada was, was you know, doing away with that rule. And just, I'm, I'm sure there's probably a lot of standards and type ones are probably held to maybe slightly higher standards just because you have to be on top of your shoulders all the time. But in this day and age, it's a lot easier to do that. Yeah. And Danielle, have you looked into the Canadian side of it? Like what they're doing over there? I have a little bit. I don't know exactly what their rules are. I don't know if like, you had to be, because I've heard in like Europe, like you had to have been a pilot beforehand, narrowing pilot, then diagnosed, and then you could regain your status. Like you couldn't be diagnosed and then go into it. So I don't know exactly how Canada works. In that case, that wouldn't help me, but it would help some people. Hopefully they change it here soon because Danielle would not survive in the Canadian climate. You know? <laughs> she likes warm weather way too much. Yeah. Now I can just move to Canada. Problem solved. Oh, so many people sent me the article <laughs> and said the same thing. I was like, I don't know about that. <laughs> so other than your career, like how, I mean, I'm with you a lot, but like how has it changed? Like how you have to go about your daily routine, like, say a daily routine before you were diagnosed versus after other than like checking sugar and stuff what else have had have you had to change personally I think it definitely weighs more of a burden on my day-to-day life like I'm I probably think about it way more than I should and and I don't think people realize like how much it's on my mind like an hour before I'm gonna like eat lunch I'm like okay what am I gonna have to do to eat this lunch, you know, and I, I probably stress about it way more than I should, but it's it just more of like the mental factor is a big change. And also I used to like refuse to carry a purse. This is probably like sounds stupid, <laughs> but like I wouldn't carry anything anywhere. I make my friends like put my like oh, ID yeah. in their purse <laughs> or whatever. Cause I was like, I'm not carrying a purse. And then I got diagnosed and I had all this stuff that I'd carry with me all the time. And at first I was like, even my insulin pens to my friends to like take to the bar or I'd like stuff it in my bra or whatever <laughs> and after a while I was like all right I guess I gotta break down and get a purse that is a big change for you it is, yeah Danielle where did you learn about type one did you was your medical team any good at explaining it to you or preparing you for it or did you learn a lot on your own or what because especially for people that are older there's not as much hand-holding I feel as it probably was for me, just because like, I was literally a child. So like they treated me with kid gloves. Whereas when you're like, you know, in your mid twenties to thirties, like they seem to either just give you the basics and kind of like, yep, you're on your own thing. Like, what was it? What was your experience with that? Yeah, I definitely, most of it was self-taught. And I just remember like when I first got to the ER, like, first of all, we were like in a pretty rural, like small hospital and I felt like that kind of had something to do with it like no no one knew if I was type one or type two for like days and I just didn't really understand why like when I first got there they're like well how old are you like 21 they're like oh you're a type two and I'm like okay can we like think about this for a second yeah and then just when I started seeing my endocrinologist and stuff yeah it was just kind of yeah the basic like here's your insulin. And I had never given myself a shot before. And they're like, okay, here's a pen, go ahead. And I'm like, can someone just show me first? Like my mom and sister had to step in and they're like, can you like, just show her like, 
you know, it's a big life change and giving a shot for the first time, you know, most, most people aren't used to that. I mean, not, you know, now it's second nature, but yeah. So after that, I just kind of, yeah, on Instagram, my mom knew one lady in town who had had it and she invited her over to my house and I was so embarrassed and I was like, mom, really? Like, I don't want people coming here, you know, but I was really glad she did in the end because she was so nice and just wanted to help. And she showed me like her pump and showed me all these Instagram accounts that she followed and like where she gets like information and connects with people. So I guess I started with that, with Instagram and all that. And I found Beyond Type 1. And then that's where I also found camp. I remember playing the shots to my parents. It was not just to me, but to my parents. They brought out an orange and a syringe with like saline solution in there of water and then like practice on the orange. And then that was my introduction to it. And even, I didn't even have to do it. My parents did. And I didn't start doing it until maybe like a month later, just because it got really annoying having to wait to eat. It's very different being diagnosed when you're an adult. And I think that is something that the medical field needs to work on. Not only are you dealing with the trauma of being diagnosed with something that you don't really know anything about, but also you're being expected to take care of yourself and making very important medical decisions constantly. So you were in middle school when you were diagnosed, correct? Yeah, going into eighth grade, so middle school, yeah. How did that work with your insulin and carrying your bag around with being in middle school? Insulin was really different. So today we take insulin to account for the food that we eat, whereas back in the day we would eat to account for the insulin that we took. So it was, okay. it was a lot fewer shots, but you had to like time your days like pretty strictly. And so I would take, it was like one shot in the morning that would take me out through the day and then one shot at uh, night. So I didn't have to take anything at school. Um, okay. But my parent or my mom at that point was, she made my lunch every day. So she knew exactly what I was eating. And so she could account for what I was doing. It wasn't until I think maybe halfway through high school that I started doing pens. And that's what, you know, Danielle's doing now. So that's when like the, the mindset around, or that's when insulin basically changed so that we can now eat whatever we can eat what we want, but then we dose for it as opposed to dosing first and then trying to fit your food into that. So yeah, it was a little different back then. It wasn't as much on me as it was on like my parents. And like, I didn't have to really worry about it throughout the day. I, I definitely did. Okay. I just didn't because I was, you know, pretty young. And then I was in that honeymoon phase. So things were pretty easy. Okay. Danielle, I was wondering, have you had any big scary moments since you've been diagnosed with getting too low or getting too high and maybe not having immediate access to your insulin or anything like that? Yeah. So before I had a Dexcom and I was just checking with a meter, I was pretty good at feeling it like when I got low, but there have been times where I've been like at someone's house who I didn't really know much about it. And so I didn't want to like make a big deal. Um, and I remember one time, like I felt like I was low, but I was like watching a movie with a friend and I didn't want to get up and like ask for a snack or something because I didn't like carry anything with me at that time. This was probably like not even a year after I was diagnosed, but I remember I finally was like, um, do you mind handing me my meter? And I was like 24 and I kind of freaked out. <laughs> I've never seen something so low. And I just like, that was probably the scariest moment because I just never seen that kind of number. I didn't know wow. like what that meant. It probably didn't help that I was pretty newly diagnosed. But right. Yeah, that's scary. Sure. That actually happened to me at a movie too with my friend but at movie theater i was going super low so so low to the point that i didn't under i couldn't understand the movie it was one of the one of the pirates of the caribbean ones until this day i still don't know what happens at the end of part two and it was really looking back now it just seems silly because i could have literally gotten up and gone to the lobby and gotten candy or popcorn but back then i was just i was in college and there was a bunch of friends and the theater was probably packed and I just refused to make myself a burden, but also like kind of letting people know that I had something going on. Nothing, nobody got called or like I didn't have to call the ambulance or anything like that. So I've had a lot of near misses. Yeah, I think it was more like when I was newly diagnosed, I was like, like I could feel it and I knew it was happening, but I was in denial almost. It was yeah. like, no, I'll be fine. Like, I don't know. I don't need to go get up and get something. And especially if I wasn't carrying anything, I'm like, I don't. I don't need to ask this person to go get me something like, but it's not going to get better. Like you need to treat it. So now I think I'm comfortable with just, 
hey, I need to take care of this. Like, I'm going to step out for a minute. It is one of those things that you have to learn to do is like taking care of yourself, especially in those uh, those awkward moments or where they you feel like they could be awkward. But literally, it's just a matter of like, oh, I need to step out. Nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know why you're stepping out. Nobody's going to really care even. But at that point, I just built it up so much in my head that I was I was afraid, too afraid to do anything about it. Is there anything that you're looking at in the future or are you kind of good with pens as at, at the moment? Yeah, I think I do like have questions about the pump and stuff. And I don't know if it's just because I'm like still newly diagnosed that pens don't really bother me all that much. But like I said earlier, like I do notice that I'm thinking about all the math and the timing and all that, like probably way more than I should. So it's definitely like in the back of my mind. I just don't know if I'm really like, I don't know, like ready to have something. I I do have the Dexcom, but like if I were to pick one, I'd probably like pick the Omnipod like you have. I just don't know if I'm ready for a second object on me, but um, I know that it does make your life easier. So I was on some injections for five years and then pens for another five or six. And then I went on to the pod about 10 years ago now. And it was like, exactly like you said, like, I don't want anything on me. Like, that's so gross. Like, why would I want to do that? But part of it was that I didn't want people to know about it because the only pumps that I knew of at the time were the ones with tubing that you needed to have, like, you know, very visibly on you plus the tube. And that was my thing. Like, I just didn't want people to know about it. And the pens were a lot easier to hide than the syringes and vials. There are definitely options, and it's def- there's actually people still that are on the syringes, like because it fits their lifestyle. I think now it's it's just nice that there's so many different options. Do you think like after a while you just got tired of doing injections, or you just knew it was like gonna make it easier, kind of thing? At that point, I was in at college for like four years, and there had been there were like moments where like my pen would fall out, and people would ask like, "What's this? Why are you walking around with a whiteout pen?" they were very minor like very rare incidences but they were like really embarrassing for me so like oh no people are going to figure this out so like i better get rid of these things quick and it was when i found out about the omnipod because the omnipod hadn't been around for very long at that point and i, I think i just happened on it like online and i was like oh my god like i can actually hide this i remember getting the the tester like they give you a fake pod that you can put on just to see what it feels like and i was just like so happy about having this thing that was like you know taking care of what I usually had to do like either going into the bathroom or like doing in my room before I went to eat. It was mostly just the hiding part of it. You know what I heard on one of your episodes, the automatic car versus the manual car, (laughs) like explaining that to people. And I have been using that ever since. I love that. Like it just like puts it in like a good perspective for people to understand, I think a very cool analogy <laughs> like explaining to someone like i have type one basically my pancreas yours is automatic and mine is manual that's awesome do you like no, that? that makes yeah. sense that makes it that makes it easy definitely. yeah <laughs> how have you been learning about it regine like watching danielle were there any oh okay that makes sense kind of moments yeah absolutely there's been a lot of those moments most of my learning of the biological factors or when I went with her to her doctor's appointments when she was learning about it for the first time. After that, her parents kind of, you know, took control. And I felt like it's not my place to ask that many questions, like in the first few months. And I just kind of let them do their thing with Danielle. But when she was learning, like, I remember at first she was like, oh, I can't eat this. I can't eat this. Which was, con- I guess, now that's confusing for me because I guess where you just, you were still learning how to manage yeah. it. I guess, like, at first, like, I didn't really understand either. And I got really, like, upset when, like, the first week I got diagnosed, my one friend was like, hey, let's go out for margaritas. And I was like, um, I can't have margaritas. Like, why are you saying that to me? And I think I created it almost where it was like, no, I, like, need to watch this and I'm not going to eat that. Because I didn't really understand either. And then just as time went on, and I guess I didn't really do a good job of like catching my friends up on like what all I learned. Well, I think as time went on, I you think just, you like, did. Yeah. saw me eating different things. You're like, oh, so that's okay. Yeah, because your birthday was what, 10 days after you yeah. diagnosed? And I remember someone on your dance team got you cupcakes. Yeah. And I remember that was like a big thing. And I felt really bad. And 
I don't know, you felt really bad and you're like, I can't eat these. Yeah. So, but um, no, you actually, I think Daniel did an awesome job keeping me up to date. We had like actually one huge lesson at her house when I came to visit her once. We were getting ready to go out and I was like, okay, I need you to tell me like how to figure out what your blood sugar is and what I need to do if if it's too low or too high. So I think she's done a good job keeping me up with that. And just like being around her, I don't know. And she's gotten new gadgets throughout the, mm-hmm. <laughs> throughout the times and I always ask about them and I try to keep up to date without feeling like I'm being too not forward, but too annoying about it. Cause I wanna I wanna know so I can help when I need to. But I never know like how much is too much to talk about it. Cause it did used to bother her. And you guys were talking about the camp. And that was when I saw the biggest change in Danielle's mindset towards her type one. Because before it really felt like such a touchy subject, but I felt like it was you were a little more approachable about it after the camp. You were almost like, you know, proud of who yeah. you are and what you have. And I don't know, it was really cool to see the way that had impacted her. So yeah, over the three years, it's just been a learning process. I've definitely done some Google research on my own. But I mean, I know I still have a lot to learn. I could never understand fully, but I'll always do my best to try to understand as much as I can. What would you suggest to people like in your situation that have, you know, suddenly have a a friend or a partner or significant other that is being diagnosed with this for them to be there for that person? How would you suggest they do that? I would say it just depends how that person is taking being diagnosed. So if they're kind of like unwilling to talk about it, I would say do a lot of research on your own if you can. Maybe if you have other people you know are type ones, ask them about it. I don't know, be as supportive as possible. It just depends how open they, the friend is or partner is to allowing them into that world, I guess you could say. You're only able to do as much as the other person's willing to allow you to do. But I mean, just educate yourself if you're if they if they don't want to talk about it, and if they do, then be there for them. And one of the things is, as our friends, how we've supported Danielle is the Type One Walk in Chicago. So we every year for the past what like three years, right? Mm-hmm. We've done it. I was only able to make it to one, but basically her friends, we all gathered around to raise money for the Type One cause, and like we made posters and did the walk with Danielle. So I think. In that way, she maybe felt supported by the people in her life, even if they didn't really, they don't really talk too much about it with you. So just things like that, just being there and showing your support in that way. Danielle, what was the best example or instance where you felt like someone was just like really there for you? I mean, honestly, like since I didn't have my family down with me, like while we were in college, they ended up coming, but like just how willing she was to like come to the doctor's appointments with me and she like brought her little notepad and was like writing down notes of what the doctor was saying just so she could tell my mom what was going on and everything that really stuck out to me and she really was trying to learn as much as she could with me like at the same time that's that's one thing i've never had somebody do that for me like go to my appointments with me but i feel like that would be the cherry on top of it i guess would be like just having somebody to go there because those were always the times where i felt the most alone with my type one just because whenever i would go to the endocrinologist i would always be the youngest person i would be 21 22 and everybody else in the room would be like 50 60 the endocrinologist didn't really see a whole lot of young people with you know a chronic illness so i always felt the the most separated from my peer group when I was doing that and I was doing it alone. So I've always thought that that would be a really cool thing to have uh, somebody to go with you. It was impressive that you did that. I, was, I thought that was really cool the first time you said it earlier. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I had to. <laughs> I, would, I would do it again a million times. She's my best friend. Okay. So, Daniel, the big reason why I wanted you on the show was because of the article that you wrote about having to give up flying because of your type 1. Tell me about that. What made you want to tell that story? So I actually wrote to Beyond Type 1, not knowing that it was going to be like a published article or anything, but actually Regine and a few of my other friends who were in aviation, like were just feeling so bad for me. And like, if anyone's going to be determined to like get through this, it's going to be you. And they kind of encouraged me, like, is there anyone you can like write to or reach out to? 
And I knew Beyond Type 1 was like a really great organization. So I wrote to them just kind of like asking for help of like what I could do in this situation. Because I, I didn't know anyone else who was like this in this situation. Just if they had anything they could do to help. And they reached back out right away. I was so shocked. And they're like, wow, this is like such an amazing story. Like, we really want to share this. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I wasn't even expecting that. And just the reaction I had from that. So when it got posted, I remember I woke up, didn't even know they posted it. I woke up like at four in the morning to a message on Facebook, like from someone in New Zealand who had read it. And I was like, oh my goodness, I, I just had no idea. So after that, I a lot of people reached out to me who had read it, who were in the same situation. And I, I really just didn't even realize there were so many other people who could relate to me. So they, a lot of them were already in the airlines. They got diagnosed and just were pulled from their job. A lot of them were just like me, where they were just like in the middle of training about to receive their license. So I actually got added to like a, a Facebook group and there's like 20 of us who have this same dream and like we just share our stories and everything and I always say to like people who reach out to me and they tell me hey like I read your story I thought it was really inspirational and I just want to say like like the same thing happened to me and I'm really glad that you shared that and I always say to them like you know I would never wish the same situation upon anyone but it is nice to kind of know that there are other people out there with the same story. How do you feel when you hear that, that very common phrase, like, oh yeah, type ones can do anything. And then, you know, asterisk, except people are aware that there are things that we can't do, but it's always like, ah, I don't care. Like, I don't want to go to the military. I don't want to fly planes. It doesn't bother me. How does that make you feel when you, cause that's what your article from beyond type one is about is like that specific phrase. Like we actually can't do everything. What are your feelings on that now? Yeah, they actually just like reposted it a couple of weeks ago and it just got the same big reaction again. And I was very wowed with that. But yeah, I think at first, like, and especially when I was first being diagnosed and they would tell me that in the hospital, okay, yeah, you're type one, you're going to live with this for the rest of your life, but it's not going to change anything. I would get so mad because they had no idea how much it literally changed my whole career outlook and everything that I thought was going on with my life just changed. And I know that's just like, they're trying to be, you know, positive and like positive outlook, but it used to make me so mad because, and it, you couldn't even like explain to them like, Oh no, actually like this changed my whole life. Cause at that point they don't really care. Like they're just your doctor trying to like help you or whatever. I think it doesn't make me as mad, but I think I just take it with a grain of salt. Yeah, I agree. We should tell people like you can still have your dreams and goals and do set out to do what you want to do. And I always tell people your story about biking across America and organizing that whole thing. Like, obviously, nothing was going to stop you there. But it's just the law where the laws are, really. So it's the laws with and I actually was interested in flying for the military. So I kind of had that double hitter there. Yeah. But yeah, and I, I just remember at camp, like, when we had first met and you said like, oh, I read your article, like you were saying, I've always told everyone you can do what you want. But then I read your article and I was like, wow, like that's a really interesting perspective. And I just remember you were like telling people your story about the biking and you kind of like stopped yourself. I don't know if you noticed, but you were like, yeah, so type ones, we can do everything. I mean, almost everything. <laughs> <laughs> so I think just like educating people, and I think it's neat, even if the story, even if it doesn't get changed or whatever, with what I've shared with Beyond Type 1, I think just letting people know that, yeah, there are roadblocks and things that we really aren't allowed to do. I think that's just important for people to realize. That Facebook group of people just like you, like that wanted to fly, but can't because, you know, in the States, it's against the flight regulations. So like you said, like you thought you were the only one out there. Like I, you're actually the second person I've met that was in the middle of flight training. You know Neil Greathouse, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he was in yeah. he was in the Air Force and training like in flight school, I guess, when he was diagnosed. But yeah, so it does happen, and it's good. I think it's good that that story is known. So for those people that find themselves in that situation, that they know that it can happen, it does happen, and can move beyond it. Yeah, it was just so interesting how many people will still reach out to me you know, a year after that's been posted and said like, Hey, I just stumbled upon this. Like, 
I'm in the same situation. I'm so glad, you know, to just relate to someone and then we'll add them to the Facebook group. And, you know, we're on there talking about, you know, what we can do to help change the regulation and stuff. So it is cool to know that there's at least 20 of us out there and with the same goal. Are you guys doing any tangible about that? Like, are you talking to anybody? Are you trying to figure out what can be done? Like, are you talking to anybody in Canada? Like, how do they fix it or how do they change that? Yeah, I know there's a lot of different people like in different facets, like trying to figure out like the Canada side, like just trying to talk to people on social media. Like I've joined the flying group with like the Europe side of it. I've just joined the group just to like kind of join the discussion and see what's going on over there. And then people from like our USA group have joined and just kind of asked questions to them. But there are people who are really trying to make a change and like the legal like legalities of it trying to do something about it so. aren't there doctors like aviation doctors like faa medical examiners they're doctors but they also are in charge of giving medicals to pilots isn't there one guy or something that's like joining the fight yeah. against the, the government to change that rule yeah i've heard stories about that and i've heard stories of different people in legal sectors who yeah, who have this same goal of the same fight. It's just a matter of getting it all together and, you know, going against the FAA laws. So just type ones who have this goal. You know, there are the doctors and someone who owns a flight school reached out to me and was like, yeah, I want to change this. And so there are other people out there, too. The rules can yeah. be changed. It's just a matter of, you know, getting the right people to agree to that. Yeah. And just like I've gotten so much positive feedback on those posts on Beyond Type 1 just from people like, yeah, I really agree. Like, I didn't know this. And I think if you're well controlled, which I think that's important, too. I think anyone who's well controlled should be able to do this. And I think especially just with how much technology has advanced. I know like the Dexcom, I don't think it's like approved for above 18,000 right now. But like I obviously I've used it on an airplane and it's like worked so I don't know but but just with that like warning you well I had a time of like when something's gonna happen yes and that's another thing too how we follow some rules but not others and it can be a little annoying especially in these kinds of situations where you could like you you know how to fly like you you can fly a plane it's just yeah, a matter of yeah. convincing somebody else that nothing's gonna happen to you when you're up in the air and I was actually amazed at like Obviously, it was very minimal, like negative feedback on that. But just from people who were type one who were like, no, I agree. This is very unsafe. And I just uh, that kind of surprised me, you know. Every now and again from the bike ride. So like I went to be on type one. They were the last people I went to, obviously, because they you know helped me put it together. But I went to a lot of people before that. And the medical side of it was a big concern for them. It's like, how are we going to get a medical team to follow you for this entire trip? It's like. One, we don't need that. Type 1s don't walk around in life followed by a nurse or a doctor or a medical team. Yeah, yeah. Like we make our own decisions on the daily. So like we can do that on a bike ride. And then one of the people that actually applied, she said at first when she heard the announcement for the thing, she, like, she was actually angry about it. It's like, this is unsafe. Like type 1 should not do this. But then she like, you know, thought about it and it's like, oh, and she signed up and did it. And we went across the country together. So I remember like watching her video about that and just being like, she was like visibly angry when she was talking about like what she thought about it at the beginning. Yeah. But then, you know, she changed her own mind by finishing it herself. So yeah, I'm definitely behind the get type ones flying. You should start your own yeah. airline. Type one air. <laughs> <laughs> I, would, I would join. <laughs> Flyabetes. Yeah. Oh my God. You <laughs> could just sign waivers. At the, just sign the waiver before you get on the plane. That's it. <laughs> I I agree. I do. Why a beauty? <laughs> That's awesome. Love it. All right. Any other final thoughts, Danielle? Anything you want the people to know? Um, I guess my big just takeaway is just with the whole type ones can do anything. You know, it's. I think I said in the article. I have a love hate relationship with that phrase because it is really nice to hear and it's encouraging and it you really shouldn't let type one hold you back from doing what you want to do and I think for me you know I, I can still do what I want to do for fun which so that kind of fits the whole description of it doesn't hold you back but um 
just with flying in the military. And I, I've also heard with cops and stuff too, some places won't accept your application. And a lot of people reached out to me about that with the article too. I don't know. Um, you know, still not letting it hold you back, but still keeping in the back of your mind that there are some people facing that struggle. So actually was a volunteer firefighter in college for a while. And I had my type one then too. So I didn't get paid, obviously. So there's, you know, rules for volunteer firefighters and, you know, city firefighters are very different. You still do the same stuff. The only difference is like professional firefighters get paid, volunteers don't. So it's good to know that there are some things that we can't do, but in the end, it's not going to hold you back from doing what you want to do. Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you both so much for joining me. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, Eugene, for your questions. Absolutely. Bye. Yep. Bye.